Y'all got that? We good? Turn to your neighbor and ask, did you get that? There's gonna be a test later. I know that was so long. Here's the thing though. It's just so rich. Like I didn't know where to break it up. It's so important. Each part of it, we're gonna delve in for the next two and a half hours. So it's gonna be great. Um, if this is your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Russell, I'm one of the pastors. Uh, we have a saying, a tagline, that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. So if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know what those words mean, maybe you knew what they meant back in the day, but you're not sure now, we are so glad you're here. Our, our one rule is just no pretense, be who you are. There are no, if, if true is truth, then it can handle your questions. And so bring the fullness of who you are. Um, before we jump into today's topic, can we pray together? Lord, we thank you for uh, your story. We thank you for long stories <laughs> that we don't even fully understand. I ask Jesus as, uh, as we attempt to understand how this might be applicable in our day and age, in our lives. Would you speak to my friends, wherever they may be, whatever they entered with, um, what burdens, what joys, what sorrows, would you silence those and call out to their hearts, the heart you created? We thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for your love, which is boundless and limitless. And we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as Anna said, we are in a new series. We started it last week. It's called The Paradigm. And we're looking at the book of Exodus. And the reason why we called it The Paradigm, it really comes from one quote that I got from a guy named Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And when he's looking at the book of Exodus, he says this. He says, Exodus is the meta-narrative of hope. Exodus is a, a meta-narrative. It's a blueprint. It's a underlying and overarching storyline in which we can find all stories. Your story, my story, those who don't even believe in the God of Israel, I would contend that their story is found in this story. From creation to fall to covenant to redemption, this is the blueprint of the world and of God's interactions with the world. And what we said last week, and in fact, what we, if we wanna make it a little simplistic, there's a battle between two kingdoms going on in this story a battle between two political theories. There's the po politics of life and the politics of death. There's the politics of fear and the politics of love. And whether you're a Christian or not, I would contend that this too is your story. And I wanna prove it to you over the next couple weeks. So last week we opened up the story and, and we said a couple key points, just as a reminder, a refresher. One, the very first word in the book of Exodus is the word and. It says, and these are the names of the sons of Jacob who came into Egypt. And the reason why I think that's important is it's the author's trying to communicate that this is not the beginning of a story. In fact, it's the continuation of a story. And we find that to be true. None of y'all created the world. You were born into a story. You were born into details about your life that you didn't get to pick. In a sense, every single one of us was born into a world that we're trying to like figure out what in the world is going on. So too with Exodus. Most, Jewish, most Jews hold that Exodus is the first book in the Bible. Genesis is the prologue. It's like the primeval history. Exodus is where the action begins. We also read in chapter one of the first recorded instance 
of civil disobedience. That is, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, told the midwives um, of the Hebrews who were enslaved in Egypt, told them to kill the baby boys. And the Hebrew midwives did not obey. We see the first recorded instance of civil disobedience. Now, why that's so important, as we pointed out, is because this was a political theory thousands of years ahead of its time. It wasn't until John Locke in the 16th century that we have an idea of a political theory of, of a government that is based on human rights. In this day, in the culture of, of Egypt of 1000, 2000 BC, Pharaoh's king, and the king is sort of semi-God. So to defy the king's orders was to defy reality itself. And we see the interjection of a theory that the life of a newborn slave is equal to the life of the king. That was super radical, super radical for its time. We also see a God who is not territorially bound. In that day, no one was an atheist in the sense that we think of atheism. Atheism today is, I don't believe in any being, any creator. In that day, every nation had their gods. So like, I'm from North Carolina. It'd be like, uh, if the, we had the gods of North Carolina, which are probably college basketball, for being honest. But we had the gods of North Carolina and the gods of South Carolina, right? And North Carolina gods have no sovereignty in South Carolina. And likewise, South Carolina has no sovereignty in North Carolina. Same thing, each kingdom had their gods. But what we see by the midwives obeying the God of Israel is a God who is not bound by territory, a God who has sovereignty wherever he is and wherever he's found in people's hearts. And we see that further because this is a people who is enslaved. They don't even have their own land. They don't have their own territory. And yet this God is supposedly sovereign over all. And so in chapter one, it sort of sets the scene for a battle between two kingdoms and two vastly different political theories for how the kingdom should exist. And into this messy crucible, a child is born. No ordinary child. <laughs> so we pick up the action with Moses, fully grown. Interestingly, we know nothing of Moses' childhood. We know nothing of his development. We know nothing of his education or his self-conception. We pick up the action as a grown adult. For those of you who are Christians in the room, you know that kind of echoes another child that we really don't know anything about his upbringing, except one story when he was 12. We know he grew up as a carpenter, apprentice. His dad was a carpenter. And then at age 30, he also stepped into a life of ministry. But we pick up the story where Moses is 40 years old and he goes out to his brothers. He goes out, he leaves the palace, and he goes out to his brothers, and he sees their burdens. And not only does he see their burdens, but he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And after he checks to see if anyone is looking, he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. Now, we don't know what Moses thought of himself. Did he think of himself as an Egyptian? Because he grew up in the palace. Did he think of himself as a Hebrew? We don't know. We do know that, because the, the, the Hebrew word that they use, the author uses is achav, which means brothers. So he saw his brothers. We don't know what he thinks about them, but that's who he saw. Maybe he, he sort of saw them and recognized them as kinfolk. Maybe he simply couldn't tolerate injustice. We don't know. All we know 
And this is the first point that's super important for us to realize is that he left the palace and he went out. Friends, it's very dangerous to leave the palace and to go out. But I would contend it's very difficult to hear God in the palace. We find that this is a theme very characteristic of this God and his people. This is a God who goes out. This is a God who leads his people out of the palace in order to speak to them. In Exodus 3.8, just a little bit later, we'll talk about in a couple minutes, God says to Moses, I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. I have come to bring them out of that land to a good and a broad land. God's MO is to lead people out of their comfort. Why? Because it's very, very easy to stay in the palace. It's comfortable there. I know where my food's coming from. I got all my needs met. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah, not everything's perfect, but at least I can understand my surroundings. To go out is to be confronted by things I don't necessarily understand. It's to ask questions I didn't know were there. It's to struggle through doubt. It's to reveal my heart in a sense that I didn't even know that I had idols there. And just so we know, just so we can make this point, it is just as hard for Israel, as we'll find out later, to come out of slavery as it is for Moses to come out of the palace. Both would be more comfortable and safer in the palace. But God's not in the palace. God's in the desert. This is the God. The God of Israel is a God who leads us out of our comfort. And I want to use this analogy going forward for a bit. In a sense, what this God likes to do is uproot us like a plant. He uproots us and we suffer tremendous withdrawals. Why? Because when he uproots us, we realize for the first time ever that we were actually drinking sweet poison of some sort. He uproots us from the palace. He uproots us from our, our present conditions and he leads us out into the desert. And we realize that we're full of fear. We're full of fear because we, for the first time, we, we, it's, it's, it's abundantly clear that we were drinking some sweet poison. And we do this all the time. Whether you're a Christian or not, we do this all the time. We think we have faith. We think our life is figured out until some crisis hits and then ish hits the fan. Maybe we think we have faith. Maybe I'm like, hey, I, I love the Lord. And then what happens? I lose my job. Suddenly, I'm not getting a direct deposit every second Friday of the month. And I get angry. And I get really angry. And I get terrified. And I realize that I, didn't, I really didn't have faith in this God. I was drinking the sweet poison of my security from that bank account. That that's what I was really drawing sustenance and life from. Maybe, maybe it's a career. Maybe our career, we, we think we have faith and then we lose that career that we had poured our lives into. And then we start asking these existential questions of who am I? And we, you know, nosedive. Or maybe it's a career that has never taken off, that's never developed the way we thought it was gonna develop. And it affects us and we grow bitter and we grow angry. 
All of these are ways that God has uprooted us and revealed to our hearts that we're drinking sweet poison. It tastes so good, we just don't know it's killing us. Maybe it's a marriage or a child. And that's one of the hardest things for Christians is to not make the source of our existence our partner or our children. And so God takes them away in some way or another. We lose a child and suddenly we're very aware that we were drinking sweet poison from our child. We were making them the source of who I am. Maybe it's an unexamined life, a life of hedonism, a life of frivolity. Everything's good, everything's fine until the death of a loved one impedes. And I'm undone. Start asking questions because we were drinking a sweet poison. Make no mistake though, this is a God who leads us out of the palace, who calls us out of our comfort, who calls us out of our safety to reveal to us that every single one of us, whether you're a Christian or not, are drinking something from this world that tastes really sweet but is actually killing you because it cannot save you. It is not what we were designed to drink. We were designed to drink living water, but we're not. I think one of the best examples of this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the most recent examples. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for those who don't know, uh, he was a German pastor and professor from an upper middle class family uh, in the early 20th century. And um, as his story goes, um, he came to New York, in fact. He came to New York uh, around 1920s or 30s. And he, he had a fellowship at Union Theological Seminary. And he hated it. He thought it was the worst. He thought Union was the most godless place. But he had a radical uh, time in New York City because Bonhoeffer did not worship at any of the churches in Upper Manhattan. He actually worshiped at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, which is one of the uh, premier and, and his most historical and most famous African-American churches. And he worshiped there because he found the gospel there in a way that he couldn't find in union. In a sense, he left the palace. He went out and he saw something that confronted his reality. He puts it this way, and I think it's really good. He says, in New York, they preach about virtually everything. Only one thing is not addressed or is addressed so rarely that I have as yet been unable to hear it, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, sin and forgiveness, death and life. As long as I have been here, I have heard only one sermon in which you could hear something like a genuine proclamation, and that was delivered by a Negro. Indeed, in general, I'm increasingly discovering greater religious power and originality in Negroes. I had a professor at Duke um, named Cameron Carter, Dr. Dr. Cameron Carter. He has a phenomenal book on race and black theology. And I took a, a course with him studying Bonhoeffer, and he had this line where essentially his understanding of Bonhoeffer you cannot make sense of his life unless you understand Abyssinian Baptist Church. At Abyssinian Baptist Church, as he says, it messed him up forever. He left the palace, he went out, and he saw something that his experience couldn't make sense of. He saw the depth of the gospel. He heard God, not in the palace, he heard God out. 
And so it's a great, great line from Reverend Adam Powell, who was the pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church at the time that Bonhoeffer was there. And he says, the best definition I know of saving faith versus intellectual faith is the statement made by the mother of Jesus to the waiters in Canaan of Galilee when the wine gave out. So for those of you who don't know, one of the first miracles that Jesus performed when he started this ministry is he turned water to wine. Isn't that amazing? As an Irishman, I love that. But basically, uh, it was a wedding feast. The wine ran out. His mom came to him and said, hey, Jesus, do what you know how to do. And he's like, why are you involving me? My time's not ready yet. But he obeys. And so she says to the waiter, she goes, whatever he says to you, do it. Faith consists more in doing than it does in believing. Bonhoeffer was uprooted. He left the palace or the academy of abstracted faith and he entered a world. He left the palace of abstracted faith, normative, racialized vision, and he entered the world of lived out faith. He saw faith lived in the marginalized African Americans and in a sense, for those of, you know, those of you who know the rest of the story, he returned to Germany in the 1930s, right at the time when the German evangelical church was sort of accommodating itself to Hitler's Nazi ideology. And he returned to profit in a sense. He called out the church and said, this cannot be. In a sense, Abyssinian Baptist Church gave him the resources and the tools to see the gospel and what it really means. But make no mistake, it's dangerous to go out. It's dangerous to leave what is safe and comfortable. So the first question I wanna ask you is, what is God calling you to do? Because I think we, we make it too hard on ourselves when in reality, when we silence our hearts and our heads, God is giving us a step. He's giving us a place where he's calling us out. Maybe if you're not a Christian, the, the thing he's putting on your heart is, live like you were. Actually, give me a shot. Come out of what your safe, conceptual worldview is and enter into a world where just dare to think that I am who I say I am. Maybe for those of us who, who um, think we have faith, but we also have a lot of means, maybe God's saying, I want you to give a certain amount of money away. And you know it, you know it's in your heart. He's, he's challenging you, he's prodding and it's uncomfortable. And we're like, whoa, 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 but what if, how am I gonna live? He's like, you don't need to worry about that. I'm gonna meet that need. That's the point. You drink from me. You don't drink from your bank account. Maybe for those who are addicted to their work, he's saying, I want you to take a vacation. I want you to take a vacation. Or I want you to start implementing Sabbath, like real Sabbath, like a day a week where you don't think about work at all. And you're like, that's really making me uncomfortable, God. Yes, it should. Leave the palace of abstracted faith and enter Go out to lived out faith. So I don't know what he's asking you to do, but I do think if you quiet your heart and be like, Lord, where are you asking me to come out? He'll give you something. He'll give you a step. And then it's up to you to have the courage to answer it or not. So Moses went out and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he killed the Egyptian. Why? Because the first time we go out, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to make sense of this. So we're full of fear, so we make mistakes. Usually going out begins with withdrawals because we've been drinking that sweet poison. So we're still trying to figure out 
how I, how I do this, how I live in this new way. What is God trying to say? So we usually stumble and make mistakes at first. But then he goes out the next day and he sees a Hebrew beating a Hebrew. And he goes, what are you guys doing? You're brothers. How often we become like what we're around. That's another point, another theme we see. We become like what we're around. Now make no mistake, we're not supposed to stay in the palace, we're supposed to go out. But notice, even when Jesus sent out his disciples, it would have been more efficient if he sent them out one by one. He could have covered more land, but he sent them out two by two. We can't go by ourselves. We have to go in groups. But how often we become like what we see. It forms us, it forms our thinking. I'm from North Carolina, my wife's from Portland, Oregon. And uh, so I have like a neutral perspective on both Portland and New York. Portland, and I mean this in the best way possible, they love the earth. Like they really love the earth, as you should, okay? But it's like, it's like one of those things where um, if you litter, like if you actually drop something on the ground, you have 12 people descend on you like, oh, you, you gonna pick that up? Are you gonna pick that up? You need to pick that up. You have trash cans on every block. And in Portland, you don't play uh, dine and dash, you play litter and dash, see if they catch you in time. But in New York, it's like, I'll be standing by the trash can, I'll have a piece of paper, and I'm scared to throw it in the trash can. I feel like I need to throw it on the ground or something, you know? Because they're like, hey, there's perfect, there's perfect concrete to put your trash, you know? But doesn't it feel like you are formed by what you're around, you're formed by what you see? And he sees his brother beating another Hebrew. And he says, what are you guys doing? And they ask him, who made you the ruler and judge over us? A very ironic question, which we'll find out soon enough. But just right now, we see he's born a Hebrew. He grew up in privilege. He leaves the palace. He goes outside the palace, and he sees something that doesn't sit well with him. It fills him with so much fear that he lashes out and kills someone. Then he becomes a fugitive on the run and an exile in a foreign land. Notice there's another one a couple thousand years later who left privileged status in a palace, a glorious palace, and became a fugitive in the desert to a ministry as an exile in a land that was unfamiliar to him. So Moses flees Egypt, and he becomes a shepherd in Midian. And according to tradition, he shepherds for 40 years. He lived 40 years in Egypt, and then he shepherds for another 40 years in the desert. And while there, the Pharaoh dies, the old Pharaoh, and the Israelites start groaning under their slavery. God hears their groaning. He remembers his covenant with the patriarchs. This is another very, very important trope in the story and for all of us. And it's the idea of the desert season. Now, I don't know how you grew up, if you grew up in church or not. In my tradition, we didn't talk about the desert season a lot. And the reason why is we had a belief that the closer, the more holy you were getting, the better your life should become. We didn't have resources for what do you do when life's not that great? What do you do when God's gone silent? What do you do when everything I thought I believed is being challenged and I don't know where to turn? But when you look at scripture, and not only Exodus, but you look at 
all of the biblical characters, every single one of them has a period of a desert season where they've been led out of their comfort into a land that is dry and arid and barren and they don't know what's gonna happen. Moses was in the desert for 40 years. Joseph was in prison for a crime he did not commit for 13. Jesus was tempted by Satan before he began his ministry for 40 days. Abraham, the patriarch of all Israel, when he was called out by God, he was told to go to a land that I'll show you. He wasn't even told where to go. He cut off all ties from his father's family, from the safety net, cut up the credit cards, and be like, I'm setting out. Where? I don't know. And he wandered in the desert. Even the Hebrew people, which we'll read about in a couple chapters, once they leave Egypt, they too wander in the desert for 40 years, friends. 40 years. The desert season is just as important as anything else in the faith and the life of understanding who this God is. Why? Because in the desert is where the withdrawals begin and end. In the desert, when he uproots you from the soil and puts you in the desert, that's when you realize that you are drinking sweet poison and it takes time for those withdrawals and that detox to happen. And then when it's done, you're like, what do I do now? And then he comes to you and he shows to you the water of life that you were to have been drinking the entire time. And that takes different time for different people. But make no mistake, for anyone who wants to follow this God or learn who this God is, there is, will be, probably multiple desert seasons where you don't even know which way to turn. But in that period, you're detoxing, essentially. There's something in your heart that has taken too much life from and He's gotta get rid of it because it'll kill you if it continues. One of the best examples of this is a man named Job. And some of y'all maybe know the story, some of you don't. Job is a character who's called righteous. Uh, We're told when we're introduced to the character of Job that he actually derives all his life from his relationship with God. Even though he's super rich, has lots of herds and flocks, lots of family, we're told none of it, that's all neutral. Like he gives God thanks for it, but he doesn't attach his heart to it. And Satan's like, yeah, right. Strike it, strike it away from him, destroy him, and you'll see that he does actually derive life. And so systematically, Satan destroys his family, destroys his riches, afflicts his body with boils and scabs. And we're told in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, we're told that Job, the righteous man who did nothing wrong, is left sitting on a dung hill. No joke, a pile of feces is where he's sitting with a stick or a rock scratching his scabs. And he's wondering, what happened? What just happened? What just happened? There's a phenomenal book called The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross, who was 11th or 12th century mystic. I encourage all of you to read it, especially if you're in a season like this, a desert season, where you don't know where God is, or you don't know who God is. And he puts it this way. He goes, even so, likewise, the preparation which God granted to Job 
in order that he might speak with him. He's preparing Job so that he can speak with him. It consisted not in the delights and glories which Job himself reports that he deserved to have in his God, but in leaving him naked upon a dunghill, abandoned and even persecuted by his friends, filled with anguish and bitterness, and the earth covered with worms. And then the Most High God, he that lifts up the poor man from the dunghill, was pleased to come down and speak with him face to face, revealing to him the depths and heights of his wisdom in a way that he had never done in the times of his prosperity. It's painful and there are no words of encouragement that I can give you when you're in the desert season. Because what words can you give to someone who's been addicted to something and they're detoxing and they're suffering withdrawals? You just can be present. But that's what's going on. All of us, we are tempted daily. We do daily drink sweet poison from things that we don't even know we're drinking. And God leads us into the quiet and the stillness and the loneliness of the desert in some way or another. He cuts off our job. He cuts off our career. He takes away funds. He takes away a relationship. Something happens that just utterly disrupts us. And that's what's going on. He's leading you into the barrenness of the desert so that when the withdrawals finally stop, he can come and speak to you. And the other thing about these desert seasons that's important to realize is that our vocations in these seasons are our crucibles. They form us. Now, I'm not one of those guys, as most of y'all know, who like, does the whole motivational, like, your best destiny's tomorrow type thing. <laughs> not that I'm against necessarily some of what's in that. That's just not my style. But in this sense, it holds true. The paths you're walking when you feel most alone and most abandoned and most understood, somehow in some mysterious way, are shaping you into God's image. Trust that. Somehow, and I don't know how, I, I can't see it until you get to the other end, but somehow when you feel most alone and most abandoned and most unsure of everything, the paths you're walking in that are the crucible that's forming you and preparing you. Moses did not set out to be a shepherd. He kind of fell into it. But notice how shepherding prepared him for a role when he would shepherd the people of Israel out of slavery. Gave him patience, gave him perseverance. It gave him an ability to be still and to hear and to deal with dumb sheep. For me, my desert season was a little bit longer, but one of them um, was not a little bit longer than 40 years, but um, my first year out of college, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was teaching eighth grade math. And it was a season where I just sort of um, left a college lifestyle, so I was purging old habits. I was reconnecting with God and just so thirsty for intimacy with Christ again. And I was teaching eighth graders about integers. Eighth graders don't care about integers. And I realized I loved my students immensely. I did not, teaching, did not like teaching math. But even in that season, it prepared me 
to teach people about things that they don't really want to know about. (laughs) To make this story super compelling in a way like, guys, I'm telling you, this is the most important thing. And it is. (laughs) I'm not calling y'all eighth graders. Only I kind of am, I'm sorry. But the desert season, I challenge you to look and see how it's preparing you in a way that you can't even realize yet. Can't even realize. So Moses shepherds for 40 years and then we're told in the story that he leads his sheep to the far side of the desert. Yasa is the Hebrew word to go out. I think I forgot to mention that earlier. He leads his sheep, he yasas to the far side of the desert. He goes out again. And at that point, when he goes to the far side of the desert, we don't know why, God activates his plan. We're told a messenger of the Lord, a malach of the Lord, appears in a burning bush and the voice of God speaks to Moses. Now I couldn't find this in any commentary, but I thought it was maybe, might be a reference to the Trinity, maybe, I don't know. Just putting that out there, do with it what you will. But it doesn't say that God appeared in the bush and God spoke to him. We're told a messenger, a Moloch of the Lord, appeared in the bush and the bush burned but was not consumed, which as we know, fire can be a reference for the spirit. And then the voice of God spoke out of the bush. And what takes place in probably one of, if not the most important chapter in Israel's history, one of the most important chapter, top five, in the entire Bible, and this conversation is super formative and it explains so much about who this God is and who we are. What takes place in this conversation between God and Moses is the battle for the eye. That's what I'm calling it. The battle for the eye. Who is the subject and what's about to happen? Who is doing the saving? The very first word in God's statement in 3.6, he says, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of your fathers. I have heard my people crying out and I have come down, I've come out to deliver them. A little further, he says, I came down, I'm gonna deliver them, but I'm sending you to do it. So he's like, I'm the one saving, but I'm also sending you to do the saving. Who's doing it? Who's the I? Moses rejects God for the first time in 3.11, and he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? A fair question. And bring the Israelites out of Egypt. We see the first instance of humor in this conversation. God says in 3.12, I will be with you. Now why that's humorous? I know you didn't get it the first time, I'll explain it. Why that's humorous is the word I will be is ahayah which we'll find in just a few short verses when God delivers his name. He says, Ahayah, Asher, Ahayah. I will be what I will be. I am what I am. It's his name. It's his name. So when he says, when Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He says his, God says his name back, says, I will be with you. It's be like if I said, hey, David, we go get a cup of coffee. And Dave goes, why should I go get a cup of coffee? And I said, Russell. Y'all didn't get it. See, I gotta gotta help, yeah. God says his name. He says his name to Moses. He's like, I will be with you. That's who I am. It's as if Moses is saying, I can't do this. And Yahweh responds, you're not. Yahweh, I am. I'm doing this. And the second rejection, Moses asked for God's name, thinking, interestingly enough, 
that the Israelites won't believe him. Not, the, not that he has to convince the Egyptians. He said, I got to convince the Israelites that you sent me. What's your name? And God says famously, Ahaya, Asher, Ahaya. I will be what I will be. I am what I am. There's humor in this. Friends, if you want to know, if you're not a Christian, you want to know who is this God? God is like a belly aching laughter. God is the deepest and truest joy that we've maybe caught glimpses of or felt for a moment, but we can't catch in certain. God is a jokester. God is so full of joy it would break you. That's who God is. And he tells a joke here. He says, I will be what I will be. He uses to be verbs. It's as if he's saying, I am life, I am, I will be. Life in the present, life in the future. That's my name. He gives an answer that is really no answer, as if to say, why are you asking my name? You wouldn't understand it at all, even if I told you. But then, because he's God, even though we can't grasp what he's doing, he goes, I'm still gonna come down to you. I'm gonna concede. And then he says in verse 15, you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. What's he doing here? He's establishing a precedent. He's saying, you wanna know my name? You can't understand my name. I'm not gonna tell you my name. What I am gonna do is point you to my works in history. I'm known by what I do. My name is a story. Some of y'all know I'm a huge lover of the Lord of the Rings, but immediately that brings up Treebeard. For any of you who know the story, Treebeard is an ent. He's half tree, half man, or not man, half. He's a sentient tree, okay? He's a talking tree. And he's a guardian of the forest. And there's this moment in one of the books where two hobbits, um, they stumble upon Treebeard and they have this conversation. They ask him Treebeard's name. And this is Treebeard's answer. He goes, I'm not going to tell you my name. Not yet, at any rate. And then a queer, half-knowing, half-humorous look came with a green flicker into his eyes. For one thing, it would take a long while. My name is growing all the time, and I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of things they belong to in my language, in the old Entish, as you might say. What's Treebeard saying? He's saying, you wouldn't understand my name because it's a language that you don't speak yet. But if you want to start getting close to it, my name is a story that you can read. That's what God's doing right here. Though he is the God unapproachable, saying, don't ask my name. There's no way I could even communicate to you. But if you want to know who I am, look at what I've done, which immediately refers us back to Reverend Adam Powell. Faith. Our names consist more in what we do than in what we say we believe. God is saying, don't ask who I am. Look at what my works say about me. That's who I am. The question, says Stanley Hauerwas, that is presented to all of us, is not do we believe Jesus is raised from the dead. The question is do our lives make sense unless he were? The question is, I don't care if you believe Jesus is raised from the dead. I don't care. I want to see a life lived out that would make zero sense unless he were. We are known by what we do, not what we say we believe. 
We are known by what we do, not what we say we believe. And then Moses rejects again. Moses is crazy. And he goes, if they still don't believe me and they say I'm making it all up, what should I do? And God gives him signs, gives him three signs. First, he says, throw your staff in your hand on the ground and it turns into a snake. God is not arbitrary. We're gonna talk about this in the plagues. He's not arbitrary. That was a very theologically pointed statement. It turns into a cobra. For those who probably know, cobra was the sign, one of the signs of Egyptian power. And then he says, pick it back up. God is saying, I have power over all politics in this world. I can turn you into a cobra and I can pick it back up again. And then he says, put your hand in your, in your cloak and he pulls it out and it's leprous, white as snow. I have power over diseases. And then he says, they still don't believe. Take water from the Nile and turn it to blood. I have power over all the natural elements. The world is mine. It's foolish that you contend against me. I allow you because I love you. But the world is mine. Make no mistake, I am the God who is not bound by this kingdom or this territory. You're in my game. You're in my hands, and they're good hands. But make no mistake, I have power over it all. And then the fourth rejection, Moses rebuts again. He says, I'm not a man of words, am I? The battle for the I. I am not a man of words, and I cannot speak eloquently. My mouth is heavy. Maybe he's forgotten his Egyptian. Maybe he has a stutter. Maybe he's been a shepherd for a bit too long and lost his sense of diplomacy. We don't know. We just know, he goes, I'm not a good speaker. And the Lord says to him, who gives mortals mouths? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth. He says, ahaya again. He says his name. I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you are to speak. What's he saying? He's saying, I am is with your mouth. The Lord is with your mouth. Moses seems to resist God's call, says Peter ends, because he assumes he is playing the central role in the deliverance of the Israelites, whom God calls my people. Moses has rejected God now four times, and he's got one more in him. The final rebuttal is for no reason at all. He just says flat out, God, I don't want to do it. <laughs> Send someone else. And friends, this is one of the most remarkable moments. God gets angry at Moses and he gives in. He concedes. He gets angry at Moses because Moses fails to recognize who he's speaking to. And he goes, fine. What about your brother Aaron? I know he's a good speaker. He's coming out right now. So what's gonna happen is he's gonna be your mouth He's gonna speak for you and you're gonna be God for him. That's what he says, friends. Verse four, or chapter four, verse 16, he says, Aaron shall serve as a mouth for you and you shall serve as God for him. We see another introduction of a concept that's gonna be really important. The concept of the mediator, the one who is simultaneously both human and God. And before humans, he appears divine, and before God, he appears human. And obviously, that's gonna come back a couple thousand years later of another who is even more human and God. Who is the I? Who's doing the redeeming? 
Who's saving Israel? Is it God or is it Moses, who is also just told by God that he's God and he's human? Who's doing the saving, God or Moses? Yes. Yes. Both. Both. And this posits one of the most confusing questions of the entire Jewish Christian story about this God. Why? Why does he demand on using humans? Why does he give in to Moses? He'd be more powerful by himself. Why does he demand and insist upon using weak and rebellious and stubborn, dumb sheep? Why? And the answer is in the very final line of this conversation. This absolutely blew me away. Like I said earlier, this is probably one of the most important conversations in Jewish history and even Christian history. This is an appearance of God like we've never seen before and very rarely see afterwards. This is a holy conversation and look how God ends it. God could have said anything. He could have said, he could have ended the conversation by saying, Moses, I am the Lord. Moses, don't be afraid. Moses, I will be with you. He could have said any of that and that would have been really auspicious and like, yeah, that's great. Look how he ends it. He says, Aaron shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you and you shall serve as God for him. This staff, take it in your hands because with it, you will perform the signs. The very last thing God says is, hey Moses, don't forget your staff. Don't forget your staff. Friends, why does God demand on using humans? Why does God end his conversation by saying, hey Moses, your staff, take it. Because the shepherd's staff and not the royal scepter is God's instrument of choice. The shepherd's staff and not the sword is God's weapon. We said this is a battle between two politics, two kingdoms, one kingdom premised on fear, which enslaves, which picks up the sword and the whip and coerces, and the other kingdom built from the ground up with an overflow of love, which says I will tend like a shepherd, I will lead you by still waters. Every God is known by their weapon. This is the God who loves his weak humans so much that he refuses to work without them. He won't enter battle except with his weak humans. Moses, take your staff because Moses, you're my staff. And we're gonna do this together. We're gonna save the world together. I am so interweaving my identity with yours, Moses, with yours, humans. I am so tying them together that our fates are now irrevocably bound. If you die, I die. And if I die, you die. But guess what? I'm life. I can't die. So you're gonna be good. Tolkien wrote a letter to his son, the creator of the Lord of the Rings. He wrote a letter to his son during World War II. And he put it this way. His son was expressing angst that how could um, 
this war is just going so badly. It was, it was so bloody, so tough. And for those of you familiar with the Lord of the Rings, it all centers around this one ring. It's called the Ring of Power. And the Ring of Power only answers to the Dark Lord, Sauron. Only answers there. And the temptation throughout the book is for all of these characters to think that they could wield the Ring of Power. And they want to wield it for good. They'd be like, if I just had this power, I could save the world. But they don't realize that the, the, the ring won't answer to them. It'll change them. It'll destroy them and it'll destroy the world too. And Tolkien, talking to his son about theology and about the war, he says it this way. He says, one cannot use the enemy's ring without turning into the enemy. Why does God demand on using the shepherd's staff? Because you can't pick up the sword without turning into a violent tyrant. Another way to put all this, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. This is a God who is humbler than we can imagine. This is a God who says, Moses, pick up that staff. You're my staff. We're gonna do this together. I'm not gonna pick up the sword, though I could. I'm not gonna pick up the scepter, though I could. I'm actually gonna pick up wood. And of course, that foreshadows another piece of crooked wood later on, where God himself dies on it. Because he won't pick up the sword. I want to invite the worship team back up. And I want to end with one story. Because what you're going to find throughout Exodus, throughout the paradigm, is just this. Just this. That Egypt and our world boast in its strengths. Boast and its beauty, boast in its power and its greatness. And the people of Israel are to be weak and frail and boast in their God, to boast in their weakness. Um, I've shared before about my scars and being born. I was born with Golden Heart Syndrome. My dad tells the story um, that when I was born, they had no idea that I was gonna have these issues. And so he goes, there's not a more terrifying moment when you see your son born, your child born, and the doctor's face turns from a smile to like, what's going on? Because they don't know. And immediately rushed out of the room to do tests. And for years, my dad prayed to God. And he prayed a similar prayer. He prayed, Lord, make my son whole. Heal him. Heal my son. And he goes, I, I had it out with God for years. I was praying, heal my son, heal my son. And he tells the story. My dad goes, um, I'm not, he's not one given to, to attributing moments to the voice of God, but he goes, if ever God spoke to me, it was in this moment. He was watching me play basketball as a 12-year-old, my brother's out in the backyard. And he was watching me and I was in the throes of surgery, probably just had a surgery or was about to have another one. And he was just praying, his heart was going out to God, we just heal my son. Will you make my son whole? And he felt God say, but can you not see it? I already have. Friends, there's a beauty in the gospel the world doesn't know. There's a love in the gospel that we can't see. It only comes through scars, comes through weakness. It comes through a shepherd's staff. Which is why if you're not a Christian here and you want to know what the gospel is, we're pure weakness. In weakness, there is strength. We don't boast in our resumes, we boast in our failures. Because then and only then 
do we see the mystery of who this God is? Will you pray with me? Lord, will you reveal to us right now the areas in our life where we drink sweet poison, where we are so terrified to leave our comfort and to leave our safety? Because what if you're not real? What if, what if you're not who you say you are? What if I can't trust you? I don't want the pain of the desert. I need this. I can't trust you with my full life. Just take parts of my life, but don't have my full life. I've been, I haven't believed in you for so long. It's too scary to actually start a life where I'm in relationship with you. Lord, all of these areas where we are terrified to give up this sweetness that we think is keeping us alive when in truth it's actually killing us. Will you give us courage and will you speak to our hearts right now? Will you speak to each heart in the room and ask them, tell them, hey, right here in this area, come follow me. Step out of the palace. I know it's gonna be terrifying and I know you're gonna enter into an unknown world, but I promise you it's better. I promise you, you'll discover a beauty that you can't see right now. You'll discover the beauty of the shepherd's staff instead of the sword. You'll discover a beauty and a joy and a love and weakness because that's who I am. Because all of that is another way of saying you'll discover love. Love. You'll discover what it's like to live a life that puts others before yourself. And that's terrifying because you think, well, who will take care of me? I will. I'll take care of you. And you'll have more than enough. Come follow me. And so for those in the room who are not Christians, like what would this look like? I pray that right now that you would just surrender in your hearts. Say, all right, Jesus, I'll take a step towards you. And Jesus, would you meet them right where they are and encourage them in their fear and tell them that you call them into the desert. You call them because you want to speak tenderly to them. And for those here who are drinking sweet poison, who do know you, Lord, would you encourage them and call them to follow you? Give them courage in that one area where you've presented to them to leave it behind. Lord, reveal yourself to us. Jesus, reveal how a God could give up his glory and become a weak human and die on a cross. How life could be killed. Reveal that mystery to us. And reveal to us how beauty is all around us in ways and in forms that we can't even see. If we would only humble ourselves enough to look. There truly is no God like you, Lord. And though it's terrifying to follow, to step out into the desert, we want to. So give us courage in this time.
And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.